The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. At that time, Jesus exclaimed, I give praise to you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. For although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to the childlike. Yes, Father, such has been your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. The Gospel of the Lord. Attending to the beginning of things is very important. And that is particularly important when we engage the sacred scriptures. It is one thing to speak of the great sweep of events. It is one thing to talk about God's mighty deeds. But it is always important to attend to the way in which the Lord begins his works. That is difficult for us at times because we like to pay attention to the finished product. We're interested in the outcome. We're interested in the result. We're not necessarily so interested in the process. And that becomes a danger when it creeps into our sense of the spiritual life because we find that with the issue of conversion and the transformation of our own hearts, we likewise can be prematurely interested in results and outcomes. And we spend so much time looking for those things that we are not attentive enough to how the work is being begun within us. The beginning, which is often small, which is often unremarkable, is important, as we saw yesterday with our consideration of the infant Moses in his little boat of a basket released on the waters of the Nile River. But we see something similar here today in this remarkable encounter of Moses with the bush that burns but is not consumed by the flames that burn it. A remarkable incident, but note how it happens. We discover now that Moses has been married and his wife is the daughter of Jethro, the priest of Midian, not an Israelite. And Moses is not seeking God. Moses is caring for a flock. And so he leads a flock out that he might care for it well and responsibly and keep it safe. And note how interesting it is that it is, in a sense, as a shepherd, that Moses goes forward and finds himself at the mountain of God. Note how wonderful that is. It is not simply Moses went out and found his way there. Moses is caring for a flock. And he leads the flock of his father-in-law out. And note, it is not his flock that he leads, but a flock that has been entrusted 
to his care. And we see here in anticipation a sign of that greater work that Moses will be given in leading forth a people that is not his possession, but that will be entrusted to his care. And so in leading the flock, Moses comes to the mountain of God. And I want to stress, note, the scriptures don't say anything about Moses' search for holiness. It simply says he is leading the flock of his father-in-law, and he found his way to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there it is not Moses who goes looking for the Lord, but the Lord who signals and calls to Moses. Note again the initiative is God's. The angel of the Lord comes down and the bush bursts into flame. And that flame is bright that even in the light of day it is visible, and yet remarkably it is not like any earthly fire. There is no smoke. There is no damage. There is no destruction. There is the brightness of the light. There is the heat of its warmth. And Moses notes it. And the bush is by itself. And so one wonders, how did the fire even begin burning in the first place? And so note, again, we see here that there is not an explicit desire to meet God that Moses operates out of. Scripture doesn't say, and Moses thought, that might be God calling to me, let me go. Rather, it is he saw the flame and decided to investigate. There was something that attracted him. And he follows this curious sign. And as he draws near, only then does the Lord speak. On the one hand, the Lord calls him from a distance, but not with a word, but with a sign. And Moses, attentive to the sign, responds without understanding its meaning, only knowing that it is worth exploring. And he moves forward. Note how subtle this is in its own way. On the one hand, the symbol is dramatic, and yet, on the other hand, it comes without an explanation. It comes to one who isn't looking for it, but who notices and says, there is something here worth my attention. And so Moses moves forward. And we pause at this and we think, how many times in the course of our lives, perhaps, has a moment of grace come to us in a similar way? Bright unanticipated, and not immediately understood. And how many times, because we don't immediately understand it, do we not go forward? We fall into the trap of thinking, unless I have the absolute meaning, I won't investigate. And yet there are some meanings that only come to us once we decide to explore it to attend to it, to investigate it. Moses could have shrugged his shoulders and said, wow, that's interesting. I'll have to tell the family when I get back home what I saw. And that would have been a natural response for many. 
But note that that is not the response that he makes. And it is only in responding and moving forward that he has the chance to hear the voice that calls to him. And this encounter, this initial encounter with the voice of the Lord in itself is remarkable because it is on the one hand an invitation and on the other hand a limit. Don't come any closer than you have. Boy, that cuts against the grain of a lot of the things we Christians say to one another, doesn't it? Oh, draw near to the Lord. Just hurry and draw near. And what do we see here? The Lord's saying, oh, that's close enough for you. That is close enough for you. That's good. You stay right there. And note, this is not the Lord rejecting Moses, but is the Lord very clearly saying, the one who sets the limits in this relationship, that would be me. That would be me. If you come close, it is because I permit it, not because you desire it. If you draw near to me, it is important to draw near to me according to the way that I call you to me. And in this moment, it's also quite clear, Moses doesn't really know the Lord. And so there is only a certain degree of closeness that is possible for him. He is not ready to draw closer to that bush. He is not yet ready to draw closer to that flame which burns but does not consume. Later in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, we will see Moses having a remarkable intimacy with the Lord. But we're not there yet. And again, one of the temptations in the spiritual life is this temptation to think that we can fall into a premature intimacy with God. And it's not that the Lord doesn't call us to an intimacy with him. It is the fact that when we are beginning in the spiritual life, we're not ready for that. And we must be guided into it and we must grow into it. But what happens for us all too frequently? I don't feel that immediate intimacy with the Lord. Right now, I must be doing something wrong. When it might be the Lord saying, that's good, but stay right there for now. That's good, but stay right there for now because this, this odd mixture of closeness and distance is sufficient for what we need to do right now. Drawing closer to me will come, but now is not the moment. Note how measured the Lord is here. And then the Lord speaks to Moses, and interestingly enough, it is now that the Lord tells Moses who Moses really is. And again, this seems strange. Moses is a grown man. He's married. He's caring for his father-in-law's flock. We have his backstory. He's a Hebrew who was raised in the court of Pharaoh. He killed a guy. He left fearing for his life. You would think Moses knows who he is and who his people is. And he doesn't. That's the next 
thing we see here. And he does it because he doesn't know God. It is God who calls to him, it is God who has drawn him, and it is God who says, you stay right there. Because now you need to know who is talking to you. And all of a sudden, everything becomes different. I am the God of your father. Note that statement. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That is who I am, and that is who your people are. Not merely the blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are not merely the blood descendant of your own father. You are one of a people that is defined by me. What makes the Hebrews a people is not merely blood, the Lord is saying here. They are that people that is related to me. And if you think of yourself as a Hebrew without realizing that, then you don't know what it is to be a Hebrew. And you don't know who you are. Note how important this is. And why am I calling to you? Because you are of the people that is related to me. This is not merely my personal conversation with you. This is part of my relationship with your people. A relationship that we don't know how well Moses understood until this moment. But right now, we see that more than the issue of physical descendants, the issue of sharing the relationship with the Lord is what defines this people. And so the Lord continues. And I'm calling to you because a cry has come to me. Note how interesting this is. The only reason we're having this conversation right now, Moses, is because somebody else has called me. And you're part of my response. And again, we see that Moses has no merely private relationship with the Lord, but rather his relationship with the Lord and his mission is related to the fact that he belongs to the people that is related to and identified by the Lord. What a remarkable moment this is. In just a few sentences, look at how much the Lord is really showing us and the Lord is really teaching us. Because what follows next is likewise remarkable. We are told that the oppression of the Israelites, the Hebrews, by the Egyptians was long-standing, and they groaned across generations in their victimization. But what does the Lord say? 
Their cry has reached my ears. With an implied almost finally. Note, and I have looked and I have truly noted that Pharaoh is in fact mistreating them. It's an odd statement. You mean God didn't know this? That he needed the people to explain their grief to him? No. This mysterious statement, which makes it sound like, you know, God let everything go to his voicemail for a couple hundred years, and now he's ready to return the phone call, misses the point. Because the people may have been groaning, but they were groaning to whom? They might have been raising their cries, but where were they directing them? They might have been naming their pain, but were they naming it correctly? Note this statement, their cry has reached my ears, which implies that there are cries that don't. It's not that God doesn't know what they are. But there's a certain way of groaning and praying that does reach the ear of the Lord. And everything that's happening now is at the service of that moment where the cry comes to his ear. And what about that? Is the nation, are the people finally, in a sense, groaning in the right direction? Calling out not just to some vague cosmic power, calling out not just because they need to vent everything they're feeling, but is there a recognition now that only God can help us? That only you can help us? Sometimes when we are afflicted, the Lord is pleased to wait before answering us because the affliction will teach us something. Sometimes when we are afflicted, the Lord is pleased to wait to answer us because we need to learn how to ask rightly. It is not for me or any of us to say what exactly is going on here. Likely it is both of these things. That there is something about this affliction that is teaching and forming the people in some way. But there is also something about their experience of groaning which finally leads them to call out in the way that will be answered. To call out to that one who can answer. And to name rightly what it is that's really wrong. Because how many times in our own lives do we have that issue of, we think we know what the issue that bothers me is, only to find out later that I was wrong? and it's really something else. I think I know the change I need to make only to try making it and discovering, no, I'm broken over here more, and that's what needs to be fixed. And so now there's this moment of finally the cry of the people has reached the ear of the God of the people. And because he is God of that people, Moses now has a job. But note this intrinsic connection between the Lord and his people and the great man who is being raised up. And everything rests on the fact that this is the people identified by its relationship 
with the Lord. And so, Moses, so the Lord says to Moses, and so you're going to go, and you're going to work with me to deliver this people. And Moses, of course, rightly says, essentially, I left because Pharaoh was trying to kill me and you're sending me back there? <laughs> I left because I couldn't protect myself from Pharaoh. How am I going to go to Pharaoh and help free your people? How am I going to do this? And the Lord's answer again is instructive. Frankly, you're not. I am. You will go and I will be with you. And note the implication. Because what happened before, you weren't with me. When you slew that Egyptian in anger, when you fled Pharaoh's wrath, you were not with me. That's the difference. The difference is you do not go back alone. You go back with me. And again, note the implication. Now there's a relationship between us. Before, there really wasn't. You were, in a sense, accidentally a Hebrew. Culturally a Hebrew. Ethnically a Hebrew. Oh, but now, now you're a Hebrew because of your relationship with me. Because that's what defines the people. Not the blood, not the culture, not the customs. Me. And you're born into a relationship with me, and now you know that. And now you know who you are, and so you will go, and I will go with you. Why? Because I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Note the importance of that with. I will go with you. That is why this will be different. That is why this will have an outcome that is positive. Nothing else makes the difference but I will be with you. And that is precisely what is different. And then, beautifully, note how the conclusion of our first reading dovetails with the beginning. This will be the sign. This will be the sign. And note what the sign is not. The sign is not that you will leave Egypt and be free. That is not the sign. The sign is not, I will afflict Egypt with ten plagues and you will witness them. That is not the sign. The sign is not, and you will be a free people, an independent nation. That's not the sign. And we sit there and think, but like, that's the desired outcome. And the Lord says, no, it's not. 
That is not the desired outcome. Your independence as a people is not the desired outcome. Afflicting Pharaoh and showing him how wrong he is is not the desired outcome. Your ability to live on your own is not the desired outcome. That is not the sign that this is right. The sign is, when you lead the people out, you will bring them to this mountain, my mountain, and you will all worship me here. Note what the sign is. Just as you led your father-in-law's flock to this mountain and met me, the sign will be you will bring the people to this mountain that all of you might meet me that all of you might know me. Note how important that is, and why? Because the people is not defined by its political freedom. The people is not defined by its mere ethnicity. The people is defined by its relationship with me. And without that, you're nobody, however free you think you are however independent you flatter yourself as being. Without this, you're nobody. You will be a people when you are truly my people. What a remarkably beautiful parallel. The shepherd who leads his flock to the mountain of God is the one who is sent to lead the people to the mountain of God. And that's the sign. That is the sign, and all of those other things, good as they are, are at the service of this. Which is why we will hear in a couple days when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he is going to say, you have to let my people go and worship God on his mountain. Not you have to grant them their independence, not you have to stop oppressing them. They must be able to move to the mountain to worship God. And how wonderful it is just to think that that's effectively what we do every time we gather for Mass. We gather here where the Good Shepherd leads us, and he brings us here to this mountain, this mystical mountain of the altar. And on the altar, we have that bright and burning presence of the Lord who doesn't come to consume us or destroy us, but to feed us, and we come here to worship him. And how marvelous it is that each in our own way can go forth from this place as something like a burning bush in miniature, holding the divine presence within ourselves, not being consumed, but having its fire within us. What a remarkable, remarkable moment this is because everything that happened on that mountain so many centuries ago was not merely at the service of the liberation of Israel at all, of old. It was at the service of that greater gathering of the fuller people of God at that mountain where Christ calls us, teaches us, and gives himself to us. But again, what makes us a people is not the merely accidental things, however wonderful they sound. What makes us a people is our relationship with him 
and his relationship with us. Amen.